you are not a product. I'm at a party for a well-known long-term community worker. They are celebrating a significant birthday, so there's a large crowd from many different walks of life. Teachers, social workers, language teachers, police, local and state government. My best friend says, I sometimes find it hard to turn off. And while I should be imbibing and adding to the revelries, work is still spinning through my brain. At this point in time, I'm frustrated with the lack of action and continued decay of the housing estate that I work on. The impact of the drug trade is evident. Most of us take a harm minimization approach, not only in how people use substances, but how we interact with those using and dealing. Why are there no security cameras on Victoria Street? Someone asks rhetorically. The implication being an unwillingness by authorities to engage with trafficking. By now, most of the guests are well lubricated, which I think is the perfect time to start plying some of the politicians and government workers for info. There is no political will. Nobody wants to be the first to put an injecting room in, let alone next to a primary school, says someone. Of course, in the meantime, drug users and traffickers will use the space regardless. In the past, I had been able to obtain funding and support through the housing department, but a change in leadership has led to a distinct lack of progress. Why do you think that is? A local politician asks, prompting me. I say something offhand about not caring about the plight of the poor or some other catchphrase. I'm trying to play coy to encourage more information. Look at the other housing estate. It was left to decay for years. Now the state government has used that to justify a private public housing estate. The land is sold to the developer on the condition that the existing housing is maintained, a portion of new housing built is allocated to public housing, and the remainder is privately owned. A short-term boost to the budget, and a long-term transition of public land to private. I'm not someone who has to have everyone agree with me or support me. I usually settle for people just not getting in my way. Under this purposeful neglect, the responsibility for change, or even just basic attempts at harmony on the housing estate, falls to dedicated but under-resourced community organisations. It feels like too much. I love this estate. I love walking through the communal gardens, talking to the residents about what they will cook with what they are growing. I love the buzz of young children excited for an event we're running. I love the jokes and the jabs with people as they line up for a free meal. These moments that will stay with me forever, they should be the public image of this community. Is the best we can hope for neglect? Or worse, concerted fear campaigns about our community used for political leverage? So I'm writing a song in my cliched, conflicted poetry to try to process the feeling of abandonment, the weight of perseverance in caring for others. I'm wishing I still had the comfort of my childhood faith that something larger than myself could bring change. Are you still waiting around for the miracle? Because I know I am. Are you still waiting around for the miracle? Because I know I am, I know I'll 
last much But it seems I'm human after all Are you still running around? You are not a product. Okay, welcome back to You Are Not A Product. Uh, I'm Christopher Sprake. And today my guest is Alexandra Sangster. Uh, thank you for being here, Alex. <laughs> That's completely fine, Chris. It's lovely to be here. Uh, now, Alex, you've got uh, many is it many strings in your bow, many mm, I wish quil- I had strings quils, in my bow because I'm not a musician. Uh, quills in my hat. No, too many metaphors. Yes, I do do many things, so uh, this is true. So I'm going to jump in with um, your earlier life before we get to uh, what you're engaged with at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so a quick Google of your name <laughs> yes, brings up um, a long list of IMBD credits, including uh, Blue Healers, Halifax FP, Kangaroo Palace that I haven't heard of, a movie, uh, I think we should come back to that one. Phoenix, a concrete nest. Was it Street Angels? Oh yeah. Um, so this is almost like uh, a list of the most famous Australian TV shows uh, in the last twenty years or so. Almost. I think that's a, that's a big um. stretching. Almost. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So I started working professionally as an actor when I was about thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, but prior to that, I saw a Midsummer Night's Dream in the the garden, some garden somewhere, and I was like, "That's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an actor." Um, but I was so I was raised by parents, kind of socialist hippies in the Dandenongs, mm-hmm. and they had this idea that. Um, that uh, basically that my sister and I were meant to change the world, so no pressure there. <laughs> Thanks for that, Mum and Dad. And um, I had no idea how I was going to do this, but then I did. I saw, I saw a Midsummer Night's Dream, and I felt like my heart was like, oh, and I went, oh, and I kind of in my eight-year-old mind connected this thing of storytelling, and um, sort of heart burst and going, this is this is one of the ways to make change. Mm. So yeah, I started working. Um, my first show was a thing called Four Little Girls and okay. it was by uh, Pablo Picasso and he wrote it watching his children play sort of in the aftermath of Guernica in the Second World War and the bombings. I didn't actually know that he wrote. He wrote, uh, yeah. It's mm. sort of like it was very eclectic as you can imagine and sort of scraps of text and it was mm. brought together by an incredible um, Australian director, Ariette Taylor and Handspan Theatre Company back in the day uh, who were an amazing puppeteering sort of um, big, big, huge puppets. So we toured around Australia in this play and I took months and months off school and that was sort of the beginning of my professional work and life as an actor. So as a teenager, was that a dream or was it incredibly stressful? Oh, it was an absolute dream. Like it was amazing. It was amazing. And yeah, so I kept working through high school, various um, bit parts in various soapies and student films. And then I went off to um, the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, Mm -hmm. graduated from there, started working in soapies and um, this, uh, this idea of changing the world though. So I'd like... 
I'd meet actors week after week that I'd grown up watching on the telly mm. and I was like, oh, my God, it's so exciting. And then I'd hear about their Meadow Lee commercial that they'd got, um, <laughs> you know, a few weeks. Oh, and then there was that small role with the STC two years ago and I was like, wow, I'm probably not going to end up changing the world, which is not to say that I don't think the arts are – I absolutely think arts are one of the primary ways that we – make change, but I didn't think that I had the talent to, or the courage perhaps to, um, to be someone that, that was my primary, you know, change space. So, so just to give people a little bit of context, um, when I had no idea what Kangaroo Palace was, <laughs> um, I did a quick look and some of the cast list, Jacqueline McKenzie, uh, Rebecca Gibney, Alison White and Kim Gintel, um, all amazing actors. Uh, that's a, a pretty incredible pedi- uh, pedigree to be launching yourself into as a young person. Yeah, yeah. Look, I I did get the opportunity to work with some amazing, amazing directors and actors, and um, but I was uh, it was very uh, sort of torturous for me. I didn't have any real sense of um, confidence in myself as an actor. It was always incredibly. Uh, fraught emotionally, and um, so I think one of the things I think you probably need three things to make it as a as sort of a working artist in um, you know in theatre and film particular, which is you need you need to be incredibly talented, you need to be incredibly lucky, and you need to have an amazing belief in yourself. And mm. I I didn't have all three, so I went back to uni and I. Um, I did international development studies with the idea that I'd go off and dig a well somewhere. I mm-hmm. uh, had the profound sort of white girl epiphany that part of the reason that wells needed to be dug uh, in the developing world because the first world, our world, um, was basically screwing them over. And that then led me to ask the bigger questions of, well, why why is that and why is there this history of colonisation and um, sort of bastardry, really, that that my uh, ancestors have been part of for generations, mm. and what's going on with us in the West, and that led me to the conclusion, intellectually at least, that we had lost all meaning and purpose and point, and we'd lost sense that we were part of anything bigger than um, like any any story bigger than our own personal narrative, and um, and I was like, well, who tells the big stories? And mm. that led me to questions of faith. Okay. Uh, before we get onto those ideas of faith, mm. when you were uh, pushing into the acting world, yeah. what was either there or not there? What was um, sustaining you, or what was lacking uh, as uh, something to sustain you? Uh, were there people around you, or was it as cutthroat as? The music oh. industry can be. Or, <laughs> no, I think, uh, look, going to drama school was, I think everyone should go to drama school. I think it should be, <laughs> you know, like some people think national service, some think, you know, young people should all become farmers. I'm like, every young person should go to drama school because you will learn how to deal with your shit and you <laughs> will come face to face with your um, absolute vulnerability and you'll learn how to breathe and you'll learn how to communicate and... Um, and you'll learn how to play. And I think the world would be quite transformed if adults uh, hadn't all forgotten how to play and say, yes, and. And so um, I, look, drama, I was 19 when I went there and I didn't know anyone in Western Australia. I sort of went over with a backpack and um, lived off cans of no-name tin tuna and uh, which I'd have for breakfast because that would get me through. I've never <laughs> been so hungry in my entire life for the three years at drama school. But um yeah, when I was in 
second year, um, one of, I'd already made this sort of incredibly tight group of friends, but then one of us uh, died. One of us was killed. Um, his name was Craig and uh, he was killed by a, a, a young man who was drink driving and um, he was driving at 160 k's oh, an hour gosh. and Craig was on a motorbike sitting at the traffic lights on his way home and he died. So that death, the death of our friend and my friend Jane's partner and um, had a galvanising, uh, solidifying um, impact on us as a group of friends. So I think, you know, we probably would have been, uh, remained as close as we are um, had that not happened. But there's something about going through uh, a war together that, mm. that means that you... So a lot of those people, I don't see them. Most of them live in Sydney now. I don't see them a heap, but I know if I was in trouble, <laughs> um, they they are some of the people that I would call. So, yeah, so we were all in that those early days all sort of struggling and trying to work out how to, to be actors together in mm. this hideous industry about staying skinny and, um, <laughs> you know, going, oh, is this really what I want to do with my life? But, mm. um, on the, the idea of the power of narrative, mm. um, now, uh, Obviously, as a songwriter, that's something else that mm. I take quite seriously. Um, but an, another side of it um, that has been, I guess, nagging at me recently, mm. um, you're talking about realising the part that people play in the world. Um, and that's essentially being able to decentralise yourself and see your impact, others' impact on the world. Um I'm just going to throw it out there, though, that mm -hmm. more recently I feel like a lot of conspiracy theories <laughs> are coming about because people are unable to decentralise themselves. Yeah. If um, they can't find the reason for something changing in their life, mm. it must be because of the other mm, yes. or a power beyond them. Yep. Um, and they need a narrative to be able to make sense of um, of that, that pain, that uh disaffection um i personally rage at systems yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but um i do see it coming up um that people are more willing to embrace the narrative of a conspiracy yeah so i think it was yates turning and whirling in the ever widening gyre the falcon cannot hear the falconer call things fall apart and mere chaos is loosed upon the world the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. So yeah, absolutely. I think um, in times of chaos, we cling to, um, you know, we cling to dictators and we cling to orthodoxy and we cling to extremism and we cling to anything that is going to um, help us to feel safe because if we know the rules, you know, this is why fundamentalist evangelical religion of all descriptions of all faiths is so attractive to people who are feeling frightened and lost because someone is up there up the front going, these are the rules and just follow by this, you know, and, and everything is going to be okay. And if it's not okay, it's because you didn't follow the rules, mm. buddy. So, um, you know, it's a story as old as time. So, yeah, absolutely. We have lost... Uh, connecting stories. I mean, I've been thinking about this idea of um, the word. If it's, I, I'm a bit of a word nerd, so words come along and I'm like, oh, like I learnt a new word the other day, which 
I had never heard before and I was like, oh, that's it. So the word, Christopher, have you heard the word um, endling? No. No, it's a new word. So it's only been around about 10 years. And um, uh, so an endling is uh, the last of its kind. Okay. Yeah. Probably a word for these times. It's a word for these times. But the other word I've been thinking about is murmuration. So if you think about a flock of birds and this this pattern of, of flight called murmuration where... You know, there's no leader, there's no follower, but they move as one. And Mm. I think all great social change movements and all um, where there is, and and also on the opposite side, all all darkness, there is that group murmuration experience, which can be so exhilarating. You know, imagine marching with the Nazis and all those feet going down at exactly the same time. Like you would feel so strong and so safe and yet actually you're part of such darkness and destruction. So, yeah, that, um, that... that can be used for good or or evil, for sure. And on that um, point of faith and orthodoxy, could we jump into <laughs> where you are now? <clears throat> sure, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Christopher. So uh, my name is the Reverend Alexandra <laughs> Sangster. I'm a minister of the Word with the Uniting Church in Australia. I'm not the very Reverend, which is disappointing to me, uh, because in the Uniting Church we have a flat hierarchy. So unlike the Anglicans, we don't get to wear glorious sashes and funny hats and we don't get to be very. Um, I did join the Uniting Church because it does have a socialist kind of structure, which suits me politically. But, but uh, you, as a minister, do get to wear handcuffs occasionally. I, I, this is this is well. I don't know if I get to wear them. <laughs> Sometimes they are thrust upon me. Um, yes. So there have been multiple times across the last twenty years when uh, my faith has called on me to participate in acts of you know nonviolent direct action. Mm-hmm. Um, all of which I have done uh, with great. Uh, grief in a way, and uh, but also as part of movement, you know, movements of solidarity with other people of faith and non-faith who are have decided that that's enough is enough. And this particular um, issue, be it refugees, be it climate, um, that actually, you know, there's so many different ways to be part of a murmuration of change, and different people have different skills and gifts and graces and abilities to 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 do those things. And you know, so there's no, there's something about um, you know, NVDA which sort of has a bit of a, a, a glamorous kind of ooh, you know, whereas actually there's a whole lot of people sitting <laughs> sitting at home <laughs> writing incredible petitions and doing this amazing research and preparing incredible documentation to actually shift government policy, mm-hmm. and so that to me is just as like if not more important than um you know frontline action work but i'm just not very good at that stuff because i'm Mm. quite impatient but i'm quite good at um you know there and also look there's there is absolutely no cost to me and there's a cost to me um maybe sometimes financially there's there's fines or there's a cost to me emotionally because it's very draining but there's no cost to me physically i'm a middle-aged western white woman you know if anyone is safe to get arrested in this country it's me um so there's a whole lot of people for whom being on the front lines is absolutely not safe Mm. and absolutely terrifying and absolutely uh dangerous uh to their physical being but i'm not one of them so you know i'll use what i've got and what i've got right now is my body and uh, my my health and my ordination um, so I can use that. I was talking to uh, another musician, singer friend, uh, not too long ago, uh, who's a doctor that now works in the harm reduction space. Mm. And uh, we said to each other, you know, that 
if you told us when we were 17 that we'd be writing briefs for government ministers trying to get community change, yeah. <laughs> we would have like you know laughed and probably raged against the idea. Smashed the guitars over your head and moved and, on. <laughs> and, and now in our 40s, it's yeah. like whatever tool you have. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so between being an actor and now a minister, um, you're... You're almost public property. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you, you really can't step out of your front door, mostly for these days being a minister who's providing in many different ways to the community, uh, but also, um, you know, from a, a former life. Oh, I think I think my former life is you know, so <laughs> yeah. Don't think I'm getting mobbed from my former life. So I do still work as an actor and facilitator mm. in a theatre company called Melbourne Playback, which does improvisational storytelling and theatre for change. And that, um, so I do often have those sort of moments where someone will be talking to me very animatedly, and um, and I have to desperately sort of work out which you know did I marry them? <laughs> did I bury their mother? Did I perform for them? Um, and and sort of searching for clues frantically, and sometimes. I just have to say, I'm so sorry. Um, how do we know each other? And they'll be like, oh, you blah, blah, blah. Or, it was quite so. similar to when I messaged you about coming on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, how do you manage yeah, being a public figure? How do you find that emotional space to be constantly giving? Do, do you... Do you have boundaries? Do you find ways to have boundaries? Oh yeah, yeah. No, um, I've got um, I've got really strong boundaries, mm. but they're so I'm incredibly porous, um, which I think you need to be if you're sort of standing in the well, the priestly or the shamanic or the you know in that spiritual space. You need there is a, a porousness that is required to um, be on country and listen to country and. Uh, you know, be a, a vessel or a vehicle for grace in whatever that means for people. Um, but um, I, so it's funny, like people often think that I work all the time and that I, how do, you know, I must, how do I get everything done? And um, I must have really bad boundaries because I'm always saying yes to things. And <laughs> I'm like sitting here with you now because... <laughs> Um, but actually that's not true. Like I, I'm a mother of three children and my first, so I had three under five at one stage and my first daughter, who's now 18, was born three months into my first ministry, um, role. So my children have enabled me, I think, to be actually an awesome long-term minister because without them, I would have burnt out. Mm. I would have probably not been very good at boundaries. But when you've got a little child waiting for you, um, then you learn to get stuff done really quickly. And 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 I, I'm just a fast worker. But also, um, yeah, there's there's priorities which are, you know, I, they've always come first. And so that's meant, consequently, I think, unlike perhaps some male ministers, I, I never thought I was Jesus and I never thought I was the one that, I, that me on my own was going to be up to save everything. And mm. um, and I was continuously renewed by this life source of love and astonishment, which is children, mm. um, which made everything make sense. 
Um, there must have been moments of chaos, though. Oh, utter chaos all the time. Like, yeah. <laughs> complete and utter chaos. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, like we all, the whole of us, all of us in Melbourne at least, went through two years of utter chaos. And, you know, at one point, point just as an example, early in lockdown, I had... You know, I've got my three daughters, I've got my husband, um, my father was living with us and dying at the time. We had a foster daughter, we had two rabbits, there was two dogs, I mean, it's, you know, and we're living in a man, so, you know, trying to, yeah, so so multiple moments of chaos. But um, I, I am a very fast worker, so that's not something that I can take any credit for. My grandmother had 10 children and I have 45 first cousins and, you know, she grew up in Dalesford with a dirt floor, so, like, she got shit done. So I'm kind of like just in my DNA is this thing of, like, just getting stuff done that mm. needs to be done. Um, so, no, I don't ever feel – I'm also – an extreme extrovert. So like, you know, those scales that people yeah. do when you're like somewhere in that healthy middle or, oh, you know, maybe you could be, you know, I'm like, I'm off the charts, uh, which can be exhausting for mm. people. But luckily I've learned, I think most of the time to keep it relatively um, reined in. But I do get a lot of energy um, from um, being with people and being present and mm. and being part of the the mess and stuff or the thisness, as Thomas Merton would say, the thisness of creation. And the thisness at the moment, mm. uh, working in a part of Melbourne, uh, how, how would you describe your work? Because we've spoken about your... Uh, activism or involvement in murmurations, uh, movements of change. Mm. Um, so how would you describe what you're doing now? Because most people, like a lot of people will hear minister mm. and there can be, still be a very staid idea of what mm. uh, that work looks like. Yeah. Um, but what does that... That's a great example of last night. So I'm currently working, um, I'm, there's, I'm in team ministry um, at St Kilda Southport Uniting Church. And so we've got uh, three sites. We've got a drop-in centre that feeds, you know, like 400 people a week. Uh, we, we wash people and uh, there's laundry services and we, um, we play pool. I'm really bad at pool and I do <laughs> communion and, you know, I sit in the gutter and uh, get off of joints pretty much every single day, usually around 9.30 in the morning. I'm like, no, I'm good, man. It's all good. Um, 9.30 in the morning, you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We start early in St Kilda, you know. Um, yeah, so I'm hanging out with a really sort of extraordinary group of human beings. But last night, we so we started this community meals project uh, that's called the Mission Meals Project over in South Melbourne because we've got this uh, astonishing um, sort of ancient bluestone church which is surrounded by housing commission and the the most expensive properties in Melbourne probably all combined sort of right next door and um so we started a meals program for the people in the uh, park towers behind us and um and it's you know we're in week five and it's going pretty well it's pretty funny and uh, we've got an amazing guy doing all the cooking and but last night I was sitting at the table and these two artists came in because they're sort of starting to, we're also opening up our hall for artists and kind of opening up spaces for artists to work sort of at a peppercorn rent with mm -hmm. in relationship with Albert Park Secondary. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but these two artists walked in and they were moving stuff in and there's all the homeless people and the people, you know, who uh, live in various places around and... And um, so we invited them to sit down and share a meal and we were, they were, you know, chatting away. And then I, I said, because there were two, uh, two male artists and I 
said, oh, you know, how long have you been married for? And because um, they were, uh, they'd introduced each other as partners and, and they went, oh, oh, no, we're not married. We're, we're, we're partners. And I went, oh, I could marry you. <laughs> and they both looked absolutely gobsmacked. And then um, one of my friends is one of the participants in one of our programs went, yeah, 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 she's a priest. And, uh, and there was just this sort of hilarious moment of like all these worlds colliding and these, you know, but being, I felt very uh, supported by my, um, my, you know, my my friend sitting at the table who knows me, uh, he, he said, yeah, no one reckons she's a priest, but she is. <laughs> anyway, it was very funny. <laughs> well, that, that almost brings us um, to the name of the, the podcast, You Are Not A Product. So if people were saying you're a minister, Alex, mm. um, do you th- feel that you present or have to present as a minister or do you think you've really carved your own path <clears throat> now? Um, Are there expectations yeah. from... The, the, no. the wider church. Oh, there probably are, but I, I'm not a big one for fulfilling people's <laughs> expectations. I mean, interestingly, when I, so I bought my first dog collar online. Uh, you can get everything on the internet these days. I bought my first dog collar and uh, when the first time I knew that I was going to be getting arrested um, and that was with Love Makes Away and we were sitting in politicians' offices, Josh Frydenberg at the time, I think, protesting the detention of children Um and so I was. I knew that this was probably going to end in arrest, so I went and got a dog collar and uh, sat down and prayed with that on. I very rarely wear a dog collar, but um, unless I'm going to a protest. But when I started working at the drop-in, I was like, very quickly, there's so many people there and there's lots of social workers and NDIS people and there's all yeah. sorts of people all over the place. And everyone just thought that I was some nice social worker lady. <laughs> so I was like, huh, okay, interesting. So I started wearing my dog collar to work. Um, and immediately like the, it was quite a profound transformation for people because instantly I became the Rev and I became the God person and I became, and a whole sort of universe of conversations and trust opened up that, um, now recognizing that for other people, there are many people who see, you know, I've, I've stood out the front of my church in St Kilda, um, in a dog collar with my sleeves rolled up and scrubbed you know, red paint uh, with pedophile all yeah. over the door. Like I've, you know, that's not an uncommon occurrence for me. I'm utterly aware of the sins and crimes of the institution into which I've been ordained. So I know that, you know, for some people they'll say, you know, what do you do? And I'll go, I'm a minister. And they'll go in parliament. I'll go, no, in the church. And 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 they will. there will be a physical recoiling and a kind of uh, like a... a a, a grief and a horror and a such pain will cross people's faces because what I represent is mm. um, absolute trauma. So I'm not saying a dog collar is always a good thing, mm. <laughs> but certainly in the context of this particular group of humans that I'm hanging out with most days, who are many of whom are suffering from, you know, mental health diagnosis and living with all sorts of vulnerabilities, it's a it's a gateway into a deepening and a trust that is because. St Kilda Uniting Church has been holding that space for such a long time and they are a trusted partner in that space. Um, it's been a really helpful thing. I've also always worn an alb when I preach, um, which is the long white nighty kind of thing for listeners playing at home. Um, and the reason I wear that is because a lot of male ministers don't in the Uniting Church. We're very cash in the Uniting Church. Um, but uh, again, as a woman, and when I started, I was, you know, in my late 20s, 
uh, people didn't know who I was. So it just made it really easy. And also we are a church of, um, you know, sacrament and deed and action and, and symbol. Protestant church threw out a lot of the symbols in the 15th century. Mm. That's another story. Uh, but um, I actually think symbols are really helpful. And, and it's so I wear an L because it reminds me that I'm not myself. I am something other. Um, I'm there as a, a vessel and a, an instrument for God's grace. And uh, But it also reminds everyone else of who I am, you know, mm. and not who I am as in me, but that I am the minister. And there's a... a in the same way that you see a policeman walking towards you and you're either going to feel uh, relief or terror depending on, mm. you know, your socioeconomic background and whether you're a young Indigenous kid and, you know, or a young Muslim man or, you know, like, so uniforms represent different things to different people. But there is a power in a uniform which... Um, and a reminder that this human being is not just themselves, but they're also carrying this story. Mm. And um, as for good or ill, like the Christian story as we've just, you know, named, it has been full of horror, but it's also been full of love. And, yeah, so I I do um, do sort of embrace some of those symbols to help uh, cross bridges, but I also recognise along the way that sometimes it can be a massive, like, but even that's a great conversation to have. Yeah, and um, similarly for the organisation that I work with now, um, we grew a significant amount during the first year of uh, the COVID lockdown, mm. so 2020. And uh, we were about to become homeless again. Mm. We were offered space at a church. Yeah. Uh, and I just had to make the call that we couldn't go into a church because we would lose mm. probably half of yeah. the, the cohort that we yeah. built up. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that the church wouldn't have been a nice building yeah, with yeah, a, yeah. A, a nice commercial kitchen to be in. Um, but um, but it was such a barrier. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's a difficult line. Um, but even as you're saying, if with symbols, um, for us, some of our work is uh, intervening when some of uh, our young uh, people from an African background uh, might have had too many drinks or mm. um, they do see... You know, police coming and mm. we have to create that space and say, yes. okay, yeah, they're with us. They're yeah. just coming in to have a meal. Um, uh, so it's definitely a difficult line to walk. Um, but I think it does take a lot of capacity and patience to create that space, to have that conversation um, because everyone needs some form of a, a thing that they identify with. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, Early, very early on when I was wrestling with my sense of call and uh, having not grown up in the Christian story and really only knowing it in the way that most people in the West know it, which is this homophobic, misogynist sort of place of really bad story singing and people wearing cardigans. Um, I was like, well, why the hell would I want to have anything to do with that institution? Um, my, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, said, look, you're not called by the church, you're called by God. And um, this is just one of the, one of the story holders that God works through. And, you know, I certainly don't think that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I think that there are multiple myriad murmurations of ways for us to connect in with the sacred and the holy. And um, ancestrally, though, this happens to be the story that I'm, you know, is part of my DNA. But uh, God is to be found 
absolutely everywhere. And even I know that word in and of itself is challenging and needs to be unpacked and deconstructed mm. because it's uh, been used as a weapon um, and continues to be used as a weapon across the world mm. by many faith traditions. So, yeah, I'm not naive about uh, the the challenges of standing in one place, particularly in post-modernity. But I, I suppose as a radical progressive Christian, it doesn't really, even though my faith is so expansive and... Uh, you know, and the call to be part of radical transformation, even using the word radical, like that's a really easy word for me to use. But if I was a Muslim, I would not use that word mm. because people would be frightened. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, I'm even aware of the privilege of particular bits of language mm. that I can just casually fling around. Um, and, but, you know, other people can't. <laughs> I'm sitting on my mobile phone right now. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's turned off. Um, yeah. Where were we? <laughs> well, I'll just jump in there because when we uh, first met, um, where, uh, the area we were living in, um, I thought it was important for my kids not to go to church, but to meet some kids in the local area. Mm. Um, and all I said was, we'll just go once. <laughs> if you don't like it, it doesn't matter. Mm. And um, we somehow ended up in probably one of the most progressive churches in Melbourne. Mm. Um, and... Through, uh, so I wouldn't say that I'm traditional in faith at, at all. Mm. Um, but what I found was that your use of um, narrative and symbols was able to affect me. And certainly at that point in my life, um, I had lost a lot of hope about how to work in community mm. um, because it's, it is a grind. And mm. if you're... Uh, it, it can be 24 seven. Yeah. Um, and that stayed with me. So even in the work that I do now where we have people, um, so historically my organization did have a faith, uh, community connection. Mm. Um, people will, the, the people that have been part of the cohort for longer will still come in and want to talk about, um, God and, um, and rather than thinking about, do I believe this? Do I not believe this? I'll, uh, from remembering how you would engage with people, it would remind me that it's what the person needs in that moment. Mm -hmm. And how can you use that narrative to bring peace or calm or hope to the, to that person, um, that has come asking questions and needing something. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm very uh, thankful for that. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't think I could have got that from a traditional minister. <laughs> um, uh, so within all of the, within the, the acting and um, the ministry, do you feel like there was a moment um, when your expression of self was really defined? Was there something, uh, or has it been like a slow growth? Um. I think, I mean, uh, so when, so playback's a huge part of my life, Melbourne Playback Theatre Company. And when I, so having trained as a classical actor and I hadn't really done much improv and I was in this moving away from, so I was moving into studying theology and I auditioned for playback. I'd heard about it and 
you know, it's based on Augustus Boal and sort of Rainbow Theatre of the Oppressed and it was created by Jonathan Fox and Joe Salas sort of about 40 years ago in the States and they wanted to, this idea that everyone has a story. And anyway, I was, I'd never seen it. I'd only heard about it and then I heard they were having auditions. So I went along to the audition and I, I remember just doing the first, you know, being flung in and doing the, like telling, retelling these stories and going, oh, this, this I can do, this, this, oh, this is my, you know, so we started speaking about strings to bows, like I'm a terrible musician, but I, I'm like, I can do this, mm. this is my, and so, and all the kind of anxiety and, um, like oh, about uh, text-based acting and screen acting and stage acting that I had carried, um, which I would probably still have if I, you know, worked in those spaces. I I don't have any of that in playback. I was just like, this is yes, that I was sort of born to do this. Mm. This is I am absolutely in my, you know, there's a there's a real care poem about um, I think it's called the Swan. It's about a swan and he's watching the swan and it's um, swimming and it's gliding. It looks just like absolute. And then the swan gets out and kind of tries to walk on land. And swans, when they walk, they're quite, they're mm. very ungainly and awkward. And um, and so that kind of, <laughs> that sense of going, oh, this is my glide. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the flow state that, you know, musicians and actors talk about or anyone in creative spaces, we all know that sense of, oh, it's just pouring out. So, yeah. so certainly as a performer, and I do remember preaching my very first sermon, which was um, at Fitzroy Uniting Church, which was the home of radical lesbian feminists. Um, <laughs> similar to you, sort of like I was when I was exploring this call. Um, an old man, old Methodist minister, sent me along, who I was working with, sort of doing grief stuff. And Reverend Elfoot, he, when I said to him, I think I meant to be, I think I meant to be a minister. And you know, what sort of minister are you anyway? And he said, oh, I'm the Uniting Church. I'm like, well, who are they? And anyway, he sent me along to Coralie Ling, Reverend Dr. Coralie Ling, who was the first woman to be ordained in Australia in the Methodist Church. And she was, uh, she only wears purple. And she was, um, she was like holding space in Fitzroy, again, in a flat sort of surrounded by commission flats, social housing and um, public housing. And... Uh, she was very kind and very patient with this sort of 20-something who'd rocked in off the streets and said, you know, look, I think I'm meant to be a minister. Um, I haven't read the Bible. I'm not baptised. I don't go to church. I don't get the whole Jesus thing. Uh, <laughs> and she was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I preached my first sermon after a while of being there. And I remember, I still remember what, what it was about. It was about, uh, it was Paul's letter to the Galatians talking about um, the shrine to an unknown God and saying the God that is, you've got a, a, you've got an empty sort of plinth in your city and it's a, it's a shrine to the unknown God. And that God is um, the same God that is all God. Like there is no, there's all these different names for God and pathways to God, but actually it's all the same thing. But what I was focusing on in particular was this idea that God is not an interventionist God. I do not believe in an interventionist God. I do not believe in an all-powerful God. Um, and I remember preaching this sermon and just going, oh, yeah, I can do this. I can mm. tell. I can I can break open this ancient text and I can, um, I can break open people's hearts at the same time and maybe we can uh, use this for, for transformation. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, they would probably be very early on stories of going, aha. Uh -huh. That's an interesting point uh, about 
an interventionist god. Um, wonderful Nick, Nick Cave. <laughs> um, but uh, it's often been a thought to me um, that it can almost let people off the hook to believe in an interventionist god. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, you're, uh, in a traditional upbringing, being told you can pray and then you're essentially outsourcing mm-hmm. your care for other people. Was that something that was rattling around in your head or? Less less to do with outsourcing. I think, um, you know, certainly that was a bit, quite a bit of what the Reformation was about back in the day, uh, paying for penances and things. But um, no, it was more about what I would call uh, theological abuse, which is when people are told that if they pray hard enough, um, then God will save their child from dying. Or mm. if they pray hard enough, the, the bushfire won't take their house. Or And then, of course, their child does die or the bushfire does take their house. And they're like, well... Is God punishing me? Did I not pray hard enough? And consequently, a lot of people end up turning away from God. But that, for me, that kind of theology is, um, well, it's it's a type of um, heresy. It's it's the opposite of who God is, and and this history that we have of telling people. Um, you know, that God is an interventionist God who you just have to, you have to keep coming back to, you have to follow the rules and do as you're told and um, and then everything is going to be okay. And we just know through the history of the world that that is, that is absolutely not true and that if, or if it is true, then God is a bastard yeah. and I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of God. If God does have the power to intervene and to stop the horror of the tsunami or the child stepping out in front of the car or the uh, the rising up of the Third Reich or what's happening in the Ukraine at the moment. If God has the power to intervene in that and chooses not to because God wants to teach us some kind of lesson, mm. then I have I have absolutely no interest in giving my life to that God. Yeah, I'll stick with the humans. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So before we wrap up, do you think there's... Any, any other important things or something that you've learned through all of this combined experience at this point in your life? Is there something that sort of sustains you? Uh, Look, we are in the middle of a climate catastrophe. Um, it's not, we're not on the tipping point of it or the start of it. It's where it's, it's now, it's happening now. Um, so hope or, or being sustained is an interesting thing in these kind of apocalyptic times. Joanna Macy, who you probably know, is the Buddhist, old, old Buddhist wise woman. And she she speaks about, you know, she's like, I don't really care if you're optimistic or pessimistic. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that you just show up. You just keep showing up. So I am filled with... Uh, rage and um, and I am comforting you know my youngest daughter in particular still wakes in the night with dreams of drowning and and comes to me because she's just seen something on her phone about the tipping point or and she's white with fear and she's too old for me to tell her a fairy story that everything's going to be okay Um, But I can channel her into action and I can channel her into community and murmuration. Um, Yeah, and I'm just at a place in my life at the moment of going, well, you know, we've all got our one wild and precious life and what what is it that I'm really good at and um, how can I use the, you know, we've all got gifts and graces and abilities and we've also, 
if we're lucky, we've all got people around us who have, you know, poured all this time and energy and, um, and I'm like, well, what do I, I've done this for 20 years, what, what do I do now, uh, given the climate catastrophe that we are in and what is the best use of what I've been given, uh, super privileged, um, in many ways to, to do everything I can to be part of you know, pulling us back from the brink. So, so that's what I'm wrestling with at the moment and um, exploring different answers to those questions and, and asking for advice from other people. So I think it's, it's a big, the biggest thing I think is about, so I studied, I did my master's in narrative therapy and my, narrative therapy is all about uh, being the author of your own story but also recognising that we live multi-storied lives and the... Mm. Uh, a real K again, I live my life in ever-widening circles. So what's the widening circle that um, we collectively need to call upon and invite in? And it's not just a human one. There are endlings there and there is country there and there is ancestors that we... Uh, we're going to need everything we've got. Mm. So I'm just exploring that at the moment in, in sort of very real ways of what's next. Oh, I'm sure that whatever is next, it's going to make a big impact on the people around you. Um, so thanks so much today, Alex, for making time to come in and have this conversation. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, so people can catch your uh, weekly gig. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I'm in team ministry now, so I'm every second Sunday. It's very yeah, every, exciting. Every second Sunday. Um, <laughs> but there's also Progressive Pod, mm-hmm. uh, which is available everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere, um, yep. So if you're into a podcast exploring faith and uh, how would you phrase it? Uh, look, it's a it's a seven to eight minutes of your life. Um, if you're into sort of unpacking uh, sort of ancient text and seeing how it breaks into this moment here and now, then um, and some storytelling along the side, then that'll that comes out every two weeks. And so yeah. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to plug at the moment? Any, fa- <laughs> any favourite environmental groups? Or, uh, if you, anytime someone says to me, what, you know, I want to make a donation, I'm like, friends of the earth, friends yeah, of the earth, friends of the, friends earth, of the yeah. earth, friends of the earth. You want to, like, they have been solidly frontlining, uh, backrooming, making calls. Mm-hmm. They are 100% the real deal. So and they Excellent. are local, they're up the road. Yep. Go and have lunch there, buy a T-shirt and, um, yeah, give them 20 bucks. And any upcoming playback theatre productions? Uh, yeah, playback. So we, we've, we're doing a lot of gigs around and about the place, but we're actually starting um, in September, I think. Uh, we can check out the website. But, yeah, we're starting um, – so we rehearse at the Boite, Mark Street in Fitzroy, and so once a month we're going to be doing just sort of open studio uh, playback performances. Excellent. So, yeah, lots of fun to come along. Um, and what else? Oh, I've written a book. What? <laughs> what? So we but get, we're out of time. What? We get to the end and suddenly there's a, yeah. I, and I wrote a book. And I wrote a book. Yeah. Um, so yes, I've just, well, I've, li- I've literally just signed the contract. So that's, Fantastic. um, very exciting, but yeah, it's called, um, uh, it's called, do they make coffins that small? Okay. Uh, we will make sure to put links for all of these and, um, we'll plug the book when it um, becomes available. Amazing. Um, so thanks again, Alex, for coming in today and remember everyone out there, you are not a product. You are not a product. 